Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello there. This week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, a highly anticipated Premier League campaign is underway and we've got the tactics notebooks out. We're going to be taking a look at early tactical trends, interesting new approaches and new names, new personnel, both on the pitch and in the dugout. I'm Ali Maxwell. I've got Liam Thumb. Hi, Liam. Hi, how are you? Do you have one of those physical sort of coaches notebooks with loads of different sessions, potential tactical approaches, thoughts? I've got a few sort of stored away at home, but now my uh, my current one is just a you know standard supermarket bought notebook. I find the, the more notes you start to scribble in them, you start to realize, okay, I don't want to spend 15, 20 pounds on a notebook every single time, just bankrupt myself. Yeah, I reckon I read... 1% of the notes I write, which does that make them a waste of time or is there still something in the process of writing thoughts down? Yeah. I, I almost never go back to refer to them. But it forces you, I find when I'm watching the games, it forces me to think about the game in such a way that I want to make notes. Oh. Therefore, I'm logging it sort of more explicitly. That's Mark Carey. I, I, I was assuming yours is more of a .txt file or possibly .xlxs. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've always got... I've always got my spreadsheets ready, um, but I am starting to, with thanks to this podcast, actually, uh, increase my tactical knowledge because I, yes, I am the, the data analyst of the group, but I want to improve my tactical knowledge. I was going to say you're welcome. It's nice to do with me. Uh, also with us for the first time this season, proving why you should always trust a man with two first names, Duncan Alexander. <laughs> Hello. How yes. are you doing? Feeling good about the new season? Uh, Premier League-wise, yeah, loving it. Absolutely loving it. But not otherwise. Well, you know, I support an EFL team who have started perhaps uh, a little bit poorly. But, you know, you learn more from those moments than you do from the good times. Could not agree more. Uh, Michael Cox is still down under. Uh, he's been on the Athletic Women's Football Podcast today talking all things Lionesses, semi-final victors heading into the final. So he'll be back with us after the conclusion of the Women's World Cup. But the Premier League is back and opening weekend was highly entertaining. I reckon. So let's flick through some notes. Uh, I want to start with thumping win for Newcastle United. Uh, we wondered whether the addition of only three sort of key senior summer signings was enough for a team now fighting on the European front as well. Uh, but what a statement of intent that 5-1 win against Villa was. Uh, of the three, Barnes, Liveramento and Tonali, just the one starting. But what an impact from Sandro Tonali. Yeah, the early signs look look good at the team level. I think we can come on to how much maybe Aston Villa made Newcastle look a little bit better um, than than maybe they were. But yeah, convincing five one victory. And Tonali was just he was just dictating the the tempo of the game. And I think the three in, in midfield was quite forward thinking, very attack minded. Of having Joe Linton, Bruno, Bruno Gimaraes as the the number six, really, even though we know that you can play in more advanced areas. It was something we spoke about in the the preview, wasn't it? That um, then having Sandro Tonali as kind of a box-crashing midfielder at times, which he isn't and wasn't at <laughs> Milan, which was quite odd to see. He obviously got the goal and it was a, 
a brilliant late run, um, first time finish, Frank Lampard-esque, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, the girl kind of reminded me of a even earlier, like a girl from sort of the late 80s or 90s, like just sort of... Brian Robson, would he yeah, have scored a goal like that? I think he scored one for England, this this is before even my time, but for at the 82 World Cup the, against France. went to that game. Um, that was nice. And it was like that, like you don't really see that sort of goal much anymore. The, the midfielder sort of bursting in and then sort of swivel, swivel volley. Yeah, well, I looked into the numbers from him last season at Milan to sort of just confirm my eye test that I didn't think he was that box-crashing midfielder. And he averaged 1.1 touches in the penalty area per 90 last season, which was among the bottom half of midfielders in Serie A. So I don't think he is suddenly going to be that box-crashing midfielder. I just think he was... He got a good. Yeah, I think so. I think it was a first game sort of um, skew. But uh, just the fact that they could control the midfield so, so well, there was some really good neat interchange for Wilson's goal, I think it was, where there was just some really neat interchange between the midfield and there was a third man run. And um, it was just being able to accelerate the attack with someone of, of such sort of high quality on the ball was will, will be so key to, to Newcastle for the rest of this season. Yeah, you should have had a second right as well. There was a moment, I think, sort of five, ten minutes later where he broke through in 1v1, had a shot that I think ended up going out for a corner. But we can probably expect that sort of transition in play style. If you look at Bruno Guimaraes, when he came from Lyon, was a much deeper sort of defensive midfielder as well. Um, I think it was the Olympics that he played in. We had a really good sort of tournament in terms of play and progressive passes, sort of breaking through the lines. And Newcastle are just a more balanced attacking outfit than the Milano. When you look at how sort of channel they were down roughly outside and needing to play in a more specific way, Newcastle have got wings on both sides that can threaten. They've got different options at number nine to play in different ways. So it just allows, I think, a midfielder then to have that license to sort of break forward more and, and be more attacking. It's only one game and whether or not Tonali stays in that role, we will find out. But Liam, I think it's an interesting wider discussion about I guess what I'd call sort of scouting or scouting analysis in in sort of more media terms is because we can only really go off what we've seen before, either with our eyes or with the numbers. um, Does that mean we sometimes focus too much on that and don't show enough imagination as, for example, Eddie Howe has with this Tonali role and, and such a good early interpretation of it, of... Yes, a player has done this and looks like he does this well or not so well. But were he to play in a different part of the pitch, who is to say that he could or couldn't do certain things like that? It feels like a, a really sort of interesting part of where we're at now with yeah, scouting analysis. And that's become the thing in modern football has been this idea of sort of retraining players as well, that, you know, players are never a finished article. Tonali is what, I think, 23, 24. He's still definitely young and feels, anyway, quite young for a central midfielder. Um, and that has happened with Joe Linton as well, where he would played further forward and got mm. sort of dropped further back. We've seen Anthony Gordon play a different role internationally, admittedly at sort of youth level. But yeah, the, the point is that these players are so good now and so versatile. And particularly for midfielders that often will rotate into fullback zones anyway, or often now will sort of play between centre-backs and build up that the parts of the pitch that they're covering, I don't think have ever been as broad as they are now. The roles that they are doing have never been as broad as they are now. So... Yeah, we just have to get used to it more, I think, and sort of go, okay, let's not close our minds off to just because I've seen a player do something or not do something, that isn't what they're limited to do in terms of their ability. It might just be roles and responsibilities in a team, particularly when Milan playing a, a very set way. And I, I think very much the same in, in the numbers as well. When we look at maybe the Smart Scout pizza charts that people will see on, on site, that you give a holistic view of a player's profile and people then assume that that is what the strengths and weaknesses of the player is. But I always often say when I'm working with the writers is you have to tease out what they're being asked to do by their manager stylistically, as you say, Lee, and what their roles and responsibilities are. And sometimes you'll have the physical attributes of a certain player. If they are a pacey winger, it's sort of daft to play them in more of a conservative role. But if they're a player who 
who is versatile enough, then disentangling what their attributes are from what they're being asked to do is where you're sort of really earning your money as a scout, I think. But we saw that, I think, as well across the Premier League on the opening weekend. You know, we'll come on to the Chelsea game, but we saw players there who looked semi-clueless at points <laughs> last season suddenly looking like really well-drilled players. And I think even now, even though we're living through this great era of man managers in the Premier League and people still kind of underestimate just how much difference and how important a manager is for setting what a player does. Play top players are top players because they listen to instructions and do what they're told. There we go. That brings to mind a, a John McKenzie tweet from yesterday, actually, where he said, it seems to me that if a large proportion of your starting 11 have a poor performance, the best place to start looking for an explanation is probably at the level of the tactical, which I think is you know, partly what we're discussing here. Sometimes whole squads of individual players can have poor seasons and then miraculously look quite good the next time around. It was Aston Villa that Newcastle beat 5-1. Uh, it's been a terrible start to the season on the injury front, Emi Buendia before the start of the season, Tyrone Mings in that first half as well. And tactically, Emery's approach, it strikes me, was uh, interesting and, and extreme and somewhat surprising, particularly for an away game at Newcastle. It's a sort of approach that, depending on the outcome, you call brave or naive. So when they lose 5-1, the naive word's going to get bandied around. It's true, but I do think we're now living in, a, in an era of, of freak results, if you like, where teams do stick to their principles and there you will get more. We've seen obviously a lot of 9 nils recently. There was 7-0. Liverpool beat Man United last season and then lost to Bournemouth the following week. We are getting more of these results now. Yeah. Like, teams don't really go, well, we're, we're three goals behind, let's shut up shop. It's like, well, this is how we play. If today it's not going very well. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's worth pointing out, John Muller started a new series this week called How Football Works and he... There's loads of good stuff in it, but he did point out that Villa's press early on was pretty good. You know, they actually targeted Tonali quite early on. And, um, you know, that game could have gone a different way. 5-1 looks bad, but I don't think it was a 5-1 game. To your point as well, it was that they were a little bit stubborn in the final quarter of the game because they did they were pressing well to begin with. But I think there was the, the final goal that Newcastle scored, but there was a chance that Harvey Barnes got in behind and squared it to Wilson. It was eventually saved. But... They just kept repeatedly getting in through the back line. And Villa was, again, was it brave? Was it stubborn? Was it naive? They just held the line so, so much. And when there was no pressure on the ball, you, basically you either do one of two things, I suppose it's a pressing trigger. You either make sure that you do crowd around the person on the ball to make sure that they can't be the one to play it in behind. And if they do have time on the ball, maybe take a step off or be prepared to run back towards your own goal. And if you do neither... Don't don't be surprised when the ball's going to be played behind and you're going to get a chance or, as we saw at the weekend, a goal. And to, I think I mentioned it in the preview last season, Villa caught teams offside 116 times. That was comfortably the highest of any other Premier League side. Liverpool 88 times and we know about their high line as well. When teams know going into it that that's how they're going to play, you can start to plan for it a little bit, maybe make runs starting from a deeper position to know that you just time it perfectly. And that's when it maybe becomes a little bit too naive. Yeah, it's a very all or nothing approach, right? I think it's particularly dangerous against someone like Harvey Barnes as a style of winger who does run in behind so well. So you're really sort of risking everything there. I think it's important to know how well they finish the season, obviously playing this this way. So um, at the start of February, they lost 4-2 at home to Leicester. They lost 3-1 away at Manchester City and lost 4-2 at home to Arsenal. But in the final 15 games following that, they conceded just eight goals and they kept seven clean sheets. They didn't concede more than once in any of those games, which is, you know, obviously there's going to be days where this works perfectly and it does. It's been a massive net positive for them and often they went one that up in games. But when you do come up against really, really good attacks and you do go toe-to-toe -to -toe and not necessarily fight fire with fire, but 
you keep the strategy against the team that can pick it apart the best. I think it was nine big chances Newcastle had. You will get off days like this. And then it's very easy, I think, in the emotion of all that to say, chuck the whole system away. We can't have this big catastrophic failure. But, you know, they beat this the same Newcastle team 3-0 uh, last season at home in that run. So it can work. The other thing as well, and I know that we should always discount preseason friendlies because they're preseason friendlies, but they did play each other in preseason and drew 3 all. Right. It's quite unusual to play a team in pre-season and then play them in the first game of the season. <laughs> yeah. that, that goes against a lot of principles of football. So I wonder whether that had any, any bearing on it as well. Well, we, we won't call it naive. Uh, it, it was highly effective and I'm sure it will be again. Just an off day or uh, an opponent that, that started the season on top form. I always find it fascinating after opening weekend, particularly results like this, very one-sided results that internally you ask yourself, is X team really good or is X team really bad? And the answer is generally, we're going to need to watch a few more games well, and we're going to compare them to other teams that we're thinking about uh, in, in those terms. Mark and I were speaking earlier and we were saying that essentially, you know, a set of midweek games in February, no one's going to put as much kind of right. store on what happens there. But the opening day, everyone's like, Phew. We wouldn't have spoken about Aston Villa Newcastle for 10 minutes in mid-February, is that yeah. what you're saying? Match week 19 <laughs> holds the same importance as match week one. Arguably more as well because it's later in the season and those points then are more definitive the actual yeah. outcome. Well, maybe so. offer four points for a win on the opening day. I think that would be a good little, <laughs> good little tweak. And Boxing Day. Yeah. You know, just spice it up if a bit. You, if you get boxing. double figures for goals yeah. and end that endless meme that comes out every year. Boxing Day 1963. You're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast with Ali Maxwell. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. First look at Postacoglu's caneless spurs at Griffin Park. Um, what was most notable, do you think? We talked about what we thought it might look like, what we thought might be teething issues or might look good. Uh, what was the reality? It was good. I wouldn't quite say it was great. I think it's very difficult in the sense of the personnel that he's got in playing a way that is similar to the, the, the way that he coaches teams in Australia, in Japan, and most recently with Celtic of playing both those fullbacks. We can have a discussion about this, but I guess inside, they're not, I wouldn't technically call them inverted because, well, Destiny uh, Doggy perhaps is, but Emerson Royale tucking in effectively to make a two and then it's a three in front of those. So you've got your two centre-backs, your two full-backs, both playing either side of Eve Basuma, who is the single defensive midfielder. And then the other central midfielders were uh, Ollie Skip, who sort of pulled out more towards the right, but effectively pushed up, as did James Madison, more of a number 10, to make a front five with the two wingers uh, and the striker, which was Richarlison. And it's probably quite important to mention though, we were without Harry Kane. And there was this was a day where they put in plenty of crosses and Harry Kane, as he did when they played this exact same way against Shakhtar in their final preseason friendly, he scored four goals. Yeah, it's a very different um, sort of reality to play that way. 
I was a bit mixed on. It worked quite well. This is a difficult team to play against because Brentford are so good in transition. They really mm -hmm. exploited both the fullbacks defensively um, and are just so good at low blocking and beating big six teams in this way. Spurs really struggled in this very fixture last season. So they kept possession well. They kept possession well defensively, but they didn't create a whole ton. There were some nice, neat moves down the sides. I'm just not sure it gets the best out of Dejan Kudasevsky on the right and Son Heung-min on the left in that both players that need more space to dribble into, both didn't really get a huge amount of fullback support. It was more underlaps than it was overlaps. Mm. So I'm mixed on, it's a really nice system. I'm not entirely sure it fits the personnel, but again, this is match day one. There'll be time to make tweaks. I mean, I'd be interested to get everyone's thoughts on the idea that, again, when you're thinking system-based versus sort of individual personnel-based as to whether Richarlison actually is the best player to, to be number nine there versus Kane. And it sounds so odd to say that because it's Harry Kane, one of the best goal scorers of the past you know, decade or so, Richarlison isn't that player. He's more likely to be a penalty box striker if you, you so wish him to be. So it's probably kind of better for Postacoglu's Spurs going forward to have that more central presence. But I'd be interested to get everyone else's thoughts on it as well. The obvious thing to say, he's nowhere near as prolific. He doesn't tend to convert his chances at an above average rate. I actually looked at it over the past three seasons. He has scored below his expected goals tally. Granted, not hugely, but we we see him as a as a good player obviously brazil's number 9 as well but he isn't the sort of player to score something out of nothing so again i find that interesting mm. to see how that sort of carries on across the the season the one thing that i thought was really promising and this might again be specific to this game was that the way brentford were defending was with three midfielders that were quite narrow and effectively the outside midfielders man marks versus fullback so it became a 235 up against a 532 so effectively just completely mirroring and what that did was pin those midfielders, one to open the lane from centre-back passing wide to the winger, which worked as a source, but then they struggled because they got doubled up on. But more importantly, effectively freed James Madison to have a bit more space roaming in behind. And there were two or three instances where he could receive from a defender or from Basuma when he got on the half turn and actually played a neat sort of through ball to Richarlison. Not a hugely long one, but slipped him in behind the defence. There's a good chance in the second half, um, which ends with a shot being saved. But, you know, it, it's a way of sort of indirectly using those fullbacks to pin opponents to really sort of hold them in their position and get your more creative players into positions on the pitch where they're more effective because I think Emerson Rao can be a really, really good wing back, but seeing him as a fullback in the system, you probably want James Madison on the ball in and around the edge of the box and you do Emerson Royale with no disrespect to him. So it's a case of where do you want, I think, your best players doing their best things on the pitch, not just a case of it's inherently good getting the ball somewhere, but in order to actually have an effective position where you can create or you can score a goal. And I'm also quietly quietly thinking that if Emerson Rao doesn't score a screaming from outside the box, maybe we're looking at his performance slightly differently. I wonder if we're all just slightly mm. a bit biased to player scores a screamer, therefore performance equals good. Yeah, I mean, on Madison, I think he's the first Tottenham player ever in the history of the Premier League to get two assists on his debut. I mean, he he did look good, but I think to, to Mark's point, no, if Kane had been there, they might have gone each other's way. I think he looks... Basically, actually, Spurs are a club that seemed to find it quite hard to, to kind of integrate new signings. And it was interesting that obviously Basuma had such a good game. Mm. It's taken him a year to kind of get to that point. And I always find it fascinating how quickly a manager can come in and just change the way a team plays. Like, you know, 180 degrees pretty much. Mm. And again, to the point earlier, it shows how, how good top footballers are at just taking on instructions and doing what they're told. But yeah, I think it's a work in progress and it will be for for quite a few weeks but they're promising signs and entertaining signs I think that's the the mm. big thing Spurs fans took from it they actually enjoyed the game 
Yeah, I mean, they had more possession in this game than I think in 37 of their 38 Premier League games last season. And there's just a fair point that they will be more entertaining to watch for a neutral as well because mm. they're going to be so open and expansive. Brentford were phenomenal on the counter-attack, um, which obviously won't play the same type of opponent every week. I think will be better against a team that wants to press them more. But you look at the goals Brentford scored in being side direct, hitting those wing-back to wing-backs, which is um, they're really, really sort of able to exploit that. So, yeah, as you say, this is a very specific opponent for match day one that you think it will look very different going forward against sort of different teams in different shapes. Tottenham take on Manchester United 5.30 on Saturday. That one is appointed viewing, I think, for the second weekend of the season. At Chelsea against Liverpool was the Sunday afternoon game. A crazy game to watch, I felt. Just attack versus attack, counter-attack versus counter-attack. Teams seemingly happy to leave themselves wide open I found it highly entertaining. Was the reason for the way it played out because of Liverpool's tactics as the away team, do we think? I, th I think a bit of both. I was just encouraging anyone to get their foot on the ball and sometimes just recycle it. Sometimes you have to go back to go forwards and it was just, yeah, maybe good for a neutral, uh, shall we say. But I, I looked into the numbers on this and there was 201 possessions in total. And when talking about possessions, we're talking about how many times the ball changed hands or feet between the, the two teams. And it essentially reflects how frenetic the, the tempo of the game. Does it have to be I a certain amount of time that the team have possession? Like some a number of seconds for it to count as a possession. Uh, yeah, I think it has to be a controlled possession. There's criteria to sort of show Otherwise, that. some of the games of head tennis in, yeah. in the National League would be, <laughs> there'd be a lot of possessions. That's a good point, yeah. I think it has to start. <laughs> 200 on a minute. Yeah, controlled possessions um, each. And for context, the Manchester United Wolves game, which I think we'll come on to, um, was the only game across the, the Premier League fixtures that was higher. So it shows just how much the, the ball was. Changing hands between the two, it was massively frenetic. I think, yeah, I would agree that it was largely Liverpool. It was a bit of both teams, but I think playing the midfield three that then becomes a four for Liverpool, it was so attack-minded. They had Cody Gakpo, Alexis McAllister and Dominic Soboslai as your three. And you could arguably say that two of those are forwards, really, and you're having them as your three. McAllister being in the, the number six pivot role, which we know he can play, but... Still, all of them attack-minded. And then you bring Trent Alexander-Arnold into the, the box midfield and he is one of the most creative sparks for Liverpool. And you're having your build-up player be the one to make so many forward-looking passes. There was just no real control in the midfield that allowed Liverpool to, to have an extended period of, of time in possession. And they started very, very well. But after that half an hour, um, it was really all Chelsea or it was mainly Chelsea's attack and Liverpool's sort of ran out of steam a little bit quite early on. I hope they all got chipped in and got Andy Robertson an Amazon gift card because he was <laughs> left uh, exposed a lot in that game and he did so much running. Yeah, Liverpool with uh, eight, ten plus pass open play sequences in that game, which is way below average. Manchester United with six in their game. I mean, that's like, you know, lower league, lower Premier League sort of levels. Arsenal are top. They're, feels like Arsenal were the only team that came out and went, well, we'll just carry on playing like we used to. Is that <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Is that allowed? Mm. Everyone else, there was so much variance in how teams came out and what they did. Is this what most, dare I say, of these sorts of fixtures between the top teams are going to look like now? This sort of 
the reverse of what we saw in the let's say the early mid 2000s which was boil the game the down the grand slam sunday era, yeah, is it, isn't the, it? the the nil nils the one ones the one nil to Mourinho's teams you know boil it down to the to the lowest of margins and and just sort of see what happens this feels like completely the reverse now as if teams are eschewing control for you know to to try and have the most high tariff transition attacks and it's often the case with liverpool they've been one of the best teams watching big games because they're so prepared to play transitionally. They had, a, I think it was a 10, 15 minute period in, in the first half where they went one that up, then scored the second goal, which is obviously ruled out for offside. But the the move in terms of, I think, McAllister dropping deeper, setting it into Trent and then going direct into Salah or getting him in behind, um, just they it was a great tactic of, we've done it once and it's worked. Well, let's try it again. And then, oh, it's worked again sort of thing. And just sort of having those moments in the game where momentum just flips for 10-15 minutes and then goes back the other way. I think Pochettino made a real big deal at full time about sort of saying, look, we only conceded one shot on target, but that might be objectively true. But the idea that you then had sort of full control over the game and were, you know, <laughs> fully organised and balanced um, was interesting because they were trying to defend in such a different way with Chilwell coming inside and um, it, it'd be kind of awkward in, in that way. So. I, I quite enjoy it sometimes. It can be quite emotionally, you know, a bit quite difficult to watch or quite draining, I think, almost of um, so much going on when you're trying to pick apart things and sort of sort of analyse it. But it becomes a game where individual brilliance or mistakes sort of d define it. We spoke about that last season, I think, after City uh, against Arsenal in particular, where because it's two teams of such clearly thought out tactical plans, generally trying to man mark the other team without the ball, trying to stop everything going through. But both teams also really want possession that it's just kind of like almost unstoppable force meets a movable object that at times it can be better when it's one style that's very different and one style that's um you know sort of one very possession-based team one a bit more transitional that can then at least allow you know either side to play their way a bit more what about chelsea and what about the player brackets players that they have added uh since this game in, in particular in the midfield area uh, moises caicedo for a lot of money, to what extent do we think he fixes certain imbalances in Chelsea's squad and will allow Pochettino and his principal game plan to be better executed? I just fundamentally think they need support for Enzo Fernandez in midfield. He has been excellent. I think I have no idea how to, and I was saying this to Mark earlier, no idea how to evaluate players in terms of sort of their um, price tags. Anyone saying, oh, what does a hundred million pound player look like? But I don't think I've seen anyone on social media otherwise say, oh, Enzo's been really overpriced. You know, he's cost too much. He's not played well enough. He's He's been excellent. In fact, he's been a bit too good. Chelsea been really, really over-reliant on him. Um, I was looking through the stats and in particular, the, the percentage of the team actions that he plays at Chelsea um, is among the top 10 players in the entire league. So all the players and the percentage of their own team's actions that they play, of course, accounted for team style. Mm -hmm. He played almost 15% of Chelsea's passes when he was on the pitch, almost 22% of their progressive passes. This is from last season. Almost one third of their switches of play and more than one third of their through balls. Um, and on Sunday, it was absolutely ridiculous that he played almost 30% of their entire team's progressive passes. Now I know central midfielders are meant to dominate these stats, but this is disproportionate and it's disproportionate in a way that you normally see in bottom half teams or lower ranking teams, i.e. West Ham when they have Declan Rice, um, not a team that wants to be pushing higher up the pitch. So they need more options because otherwise, and a bit similar to what England, England's women team have with Kira Walsh, where she gets marked out of the game. If you can mark one player out and that's the main creative threat, you've got big problems. And that's why Chelsea's attack, I think, last season struggled because when you get so reliant on one player, Enzo Fernandes came in and played every single game um, towards the end of the season that 
it just has more issues. They need, in Caicedo, they've got more of a ball winner. I think Enzo's a bit more of a deep line playmaker. But again, as we saw against Liverpool, he can play further forward too. And that might open up more options that way. I think that's the thing people sleep on with Caicedo, though, is, is that, yeah, he's brilliant defensively, but he's actually really creative as well. He had the most chances created for Brighton last year, the most through balls as well. So, yeah, they can interchange, I think, really well. And that's what makes it such an exciting partnership. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. I, I did come up with my FPL name. I was just so tired after spending ages doing my team. I was like, and I'm now I'm expected to come up with a good team name because I had him in my team. I was like, there you go. I still haven't done my team name. I think you what? can change it on FPL. I just, you can't. I, I, can you not? No. I've literally just put Carey as a, <laughs> as a holder. <laughs> I think on the note of, of new signings as well, I was really impressed by by Nicholas Jackson. I thought he was just really good with his his direct running. I think the importance that we're going to place on him now, you know, going into this season is heightened because of the Christopher and Kunku injury, which looks to be definitely months that he'll be out for. Um and Opta put out something that was really interesting as well. They, that Nicholas Jackson made 21 off-the-ball runs into the box against Liverpool, which was at least nine more than any other Premier League player across the opening weekend. And they, they have a specific criteria for what this is, but it's essentially a purposeful run uh, into the box when your team's got possession. So it just shows how how good his off-ball running is, how many, you know, when, when the chemistry kind of works with the rest of his teammates, how much they'll be looking to find him. Um, and he's just blisteringly fast as well. There was a moment, I think, there, Ibrahima Kanate had, I think, a yard or two on him. And he was just like, you want a race? We'll give you a race. <laughs> and he burned through him, cut across him even. Um, and it didn't come to anything in the end, but it was just, it was one of those moments where if people didn't know about him before, you saw his pace and you're like, okay, this, this is going to be quite a, a frequent event across the season. I mean, it's classic Chelsea to sign so many players that a few slip under the radar. But I think gem, for general fans, I think he his chance already did. But he ended the season really strongly. I mean, he has had some injury issues. I mean, he, he nearly came to the Premier League last January. Um, but I think, yeah, he's got all the attributes to be the sort of forward they've been crying out for, really. Luton Town's welcome to the Premier League was a 4-1 defeat at Brighton, Liam, positives any negatives from their performance setting aside the relatively heavy defeat 
Yeah, they didn't really lose a game in, in the full one sense. Um, they didn't have much of the ball, but that is very much Luton's style. You know that even better than I do. But in the same way that Brentford, of course, seems a lot of problems, and I use them as the example of a newly promoted team playing in a similar sort of direct um, 3-5-2, they were really, really good for the first 60 minutes. Um, and it, it took, you know, to concede a penalty, um, a defensive error, and then sort of a, a late goal to sort of cap a 4-1 Um before on win, but I thought the front two were excellent. They caused Lewis Dunk, so this was Carlton Morris uh, and Elijah Adebayo, caused Lewis Dunk and Jan Paul Van Hecker serious problems. I mean, you look at the penalty that they win is from playing long into the number nine. I think um, Morris flicks it onto himself and then puts in a cross that Dunk um, handballs. But it was just the way that Brighton were playing was actually very similar to Spurs, effectively a 2-3-5. They moved both the fullbacks inside and, and left lots of space. And there were sort of four or five transitions early in the first half um, where Luton won the ball in, in midfield um, and Pansy often winning it a lot and breaking down either flank and quickly getting into a, a crossing position um, and created plenty of chances that way. I, can, I can't see any reason why this style won't be effective in more games. This is a Brighton very good team to sort of play against and particularly hard to play against in, in that style of play. So, yeah, I think... A lot of people have written them off in advance because they'll look at the perhaps the squad and the individual quality they've got and maybe think that that's limited. But this is a team that plays a unit so well and there's just so many complementary players there. I thought Ryan Giles had a really good debut um, at left back, had a couple of really good set pieces. Could have had an assist for um, Morris as well with a good header from a corner that still saved, I think 1-0. Um, so yeah, for sort of the first 60 minutes, they were excellent and then faded in the game, which I think is to be expected sometimes when you are so defensive. But I wouldn't, put them as favourites relegation by a long shot. We spoke about their style in the, the preview as well and it's just kind of nice to see that after the first game that style is very much there to, to see. So they had 15.6 passes per cross. That was the lowest of any side on the opening weekend. So at the soonest opportunity that they could cross and when you've got someone of the, the quality of Ryan Giles in his crossing ability then it makes complete sense and that follows on so neatly from last season. 21.7 passes per cross was also the lowest uh, in the championship. So They've got a style, they've got a very clear way of playing and even on first sighting, it seems to be that they are implementing that style. Yeah, it feels like they'll need some fortune with injuries, some smart rotation, but certainly with Brown being added to that front line, um, you can absolutely see the logic in signing him. Uh, people will look at a, a championship goals tally that doesn't leap off the page and I think that would be to be ignoring the, the qualities that he does have and the fact that he played a lot of last season right wing back for Stoke but I think looked pretty bright on debut and, and as Liam said that that attacking style with those three in particular Adebayo, Morris and Brown in rotation um, should be enough to to cause a lot of headaches I think it's fair to say uh, what about Arsenal early game on Saturday winners against Nottingham Forest uh, I, I've the, the online discourse, which is always fairly loud when it comes to Arsenal, uh, seems to be quite mixed on this. I've, I've seen threads suggesting it's one of the greatest performances of all time. I've seen some threads uh, seeming to suggest that, you know, certain actions and certain tactical points were somewhat concerning. So I'm a little confused and I'd like some help here. Uh, how did Arsenal play on Saturday? Similarly kind of mixed. I can kind of see why... why all the, the above is is kind of true. I think they were a little bit susceptible to the, the counter-attack at times. I think the reason that was the case, especially in the first half, was that Thomas Partey started as a, as a right back and came inside, which in itself is quite interesting that obviously a lot of the tactical trend last season was about a, a natural fullback or a centre-back in the case of John Stones coming into midfield, but starting a midfielder in a, in a right back or fullback position and then coming inside was interesting too. But then... 
someone of that profile was then quite susceptible to um, to the counter-attack or, or not as uh, strong defensively. So I think that was kind of mixed as well. Um, I mean, just purely on, on vibes, uh, Saka's goal was incredible. Mm. And the Martinelli bit of skill that wasn't as refined as it kind of looked on first glance. I think he lost control of the so? ball. No, the back heel where he does the sort of the roulette the or the spin. Turkey Twizzler. Yeah. Back heel. He lost control of the ball, didn't he? Yeah, I he? had quite a big argument about this because my friend said, oh, that was quite lucky. Yeah. But I think as someone who occasionally tries to pull this off on their Wednesday night, six aside, I think there is, uh, especially someone who actually knows what they're doing, you either use your studs or the bottom of your foot in you know, in the second part of that action if you want to keep the ball close to you or you use your back heel in order it, yeah. to pass it. pass it. I think it was deliberate. Yeah. Really? Yeah. We should like be two or three players converging on him, right? tell it one of like the most was... talented Brazilian <laughs> skill merchants in world football that he didn't mean to back heel I'll the, get the roulette. I'll get a roulette. high horse. He's been doing this since before you... No, you're older than him. <laughs> anyway, uh, Saka, is he the best right-sided forward player in the world right now? If if you had to let's take a vote on this, if you had to have Saka or Salah or someone else in your team just for this season, not for the rest of their career, because age makes it complicated. But if you had to have Saka, Salah, or a another right-sided forward in world football for this season, who would you have? I would have Salah, but I think that Salah's sort of profile is more kind of off ball runs into the box and trying to be kind of high volume and wanting to get a shot away a lot. Whereas Saka is more, which is why I guess Arsenal do continue to to invert their fullbacks or have their fullbacks come inside, that Saka is more one to come to the play than face up his opponent in a one-on-one, score at some fantastic goals from outside the area. And that's not to kind of swerve your question, but I think they are slightly different profiles and I probably want my right winger to be more kind of on the end of the attacks, but Saka is so good at being that one to collect it, get into a one-on-one and often score goals as well. I just think I'd go Saka. I just think because no matter what the game is like, he can shine. I've seen him shine in almost any scenario. And also the consistency. I know Salah has this as well and it is an underrated thing about footballers you know you can be the best footballer in the world if you're constantly getting injured then mm. you know Saka if he plays against Palace this week that'll be 82 Premier League games in a row mm. which is weird because there's been points during that run where he's been injured and it's been like <laughs> Saka's gonna you know hurt his ankle will probably miss this game and lo and behold he you know there's been a couple of times he's come on as a sub but he has featured in 81 games in a row which is remarkable what does he do between games that's what I don't know just shuts himself away the the greatest recovery He's got the performance enhancing really unicorn play. inflatable thing that he has at the end of the Who do you have, Liam? That's Rodrigo. I, I, was, actually, I was racking my brain to try and think of other sort of, uh, well, probably left-footed right-wingers primarily. I was thinking of sort of him and Usman Dembele as a sort of more alternative options. But um, yeah, it's just quite a thing of the period we've got to now where like all of the wingers are now completely inverted. Um, pretty much like I can only really think of Dembele as someone who's and even he's I think predominantly left footed but Dwight McNeil was right. holding Dwight out yeah, he was, he was holding well, out for a while of course of course <laughs> um, I, I've just gone through and quickly looked at, um, at Salah's numbers and like they're still an absolute joke that he's gone 31 goals and assists combined uh, last season uh, 36 before that 27 29 30 42 um, so it's really really good and Saka is just trending upwards massively he's gone 8 18 and 25 in his last three seasons but you just really forget how pure Salah's output has been consistently do you think there's such a thing as like data fatigue where a player is hit such a level of consistency that people just take it for granted I 
think that it's happened with Kane, right? Like the bar just goes up and that whenever mm -hmm. you have that, the bar doesn't ever seem to move down, but it can permanently move up. But if like you hit that and that's now your standard. I enjoy the concept of data fatigue though. Much more, much more fun than voter fatigue. <laughs> <laughs> We'll finish off with just a couple of quick hits in terms of like early themes, general trends. It's it's a very small sample size. A lot will depend on who each team was playing on the on the weekend itself. Um, but we did see quite a lot of man for man pressing. Liam, what exactly does that mean? Well, it's where you will assign one player to track and follow another player in the opposition. So you won't really have a set structure of it's going to look a certain you know number of lines of a it won't be necessarily a 4-4-2 it might become a slightly more random shape because your center you know striker i want you to track the center back striker follow the other center back largely there are limits to if a player starts moving massively across the pitch at times i go okay someone else take over because otherwise we end up just completely pulled apart and um, that's where spaces start to be exploited but it's a real trend that we've started to see come down drop more towards the the bottom half teams that you know pressing has now become a thing that sort of everyone does or almost everyone does to um, a real big degree and it's now opening up and I think the Burnley City game was an interesting one because Burnley who are many of tips you know not to do particularly well um, albeit be a more high possession team than what they were before um, saw some funny comments about this team being worse than the team that um, went down which obviously just don't feel true but they had a really young team um, Still press City man for man, and this is one of the, the best possession teams in the entire world, if not the best. Um, and yet Edison repeatedly kicked long an awful lot. Um, his sort of percentage of his long passes was way up on his um, average from last season. He played 12 passes to the final third, which was his most in total um, compared to any game sort of last season. And was just, at times, just kept hitting, clipping these big diagonals to, to Carl Walker, pushing up on the right. There were times where he went direct into Erling Haaland because the thing with man marking is it, stops you so well from getting into those key pivot players to access someone like Rodri or Rico Lewis. But what it does do is push teams further up the pitch. And what that does is vacate space in behind. So it's just where you want to allow opposition to have overloads or superiority or space. And generally that means they're going to go, we'll push you higher up. But if you can clip it over us, we're in big, big trouble here. Yeah. And I mean, no one yet has decided to man mark the opposition goalkeeper. And Pep's worked that out, and I'd encourage people to read. There's an excellent Stu James piece on on the Athletic. He wrote earlier in the week, looking at basically Edison first half was having tons of time on the ball, it was almost waiting to be pressed by Burnley. They weren't doing it, so it was almost it was a very sort of weird standoff. But like you said, Liam, in the second half, they just Edison can play really clever short passes. He can also absolutely ping it, and City have got a very tall team, um, and it's kind of. It's almost neat, isn't it, that as other clubs have slowly adopted Guardiola's methods, Pep's just kind of metamorphosing into sort of John Beck and going, hmm. right, we'll, we'll hit big di diags and see what happens. So, I was going to uh, say, there is something pleasingly old school about the, uh, the maxim of just beat your opposite man. So, you know, a lot of the 90s fullbacks will say, when, when I played, the only thing that mattered was the winger and that I beat him in majority of our duels essentially across different aspects of the game and you know going man for man now has many similarities um, but because teams are playing such different formations if you like in and out of possession it's not always the sort of traditional uh, players up against their opposite man so to speak sometimes it'll be a central midfielder whose man that they're pressing is the outside centre-back or, or or even a winger who comes inside to press the centre-back it's it's a lot isn't it there was a phenomenal series of sequences um, in the Brighton-Luton game where Brighton were building up from the back and 
everyone knows they like to drop the central midfielders in deep, but this was ridiculous. They had them almost on the penalty spot, like inside their own box to play short. Luton adapted their shape to push one wing back up because they had a back five, so they wanted to match them. Um, you had this situation where Brighton had their back four all in their defensive third, plus the two defensive midfielders, and then it was just a 4v4 on the halfway line. So it was basically a <laughs> 6v6 in the defensive third, no one in midfield, and 4v4 on, on the edge of the pitch. And it's like... It's it makes sense when you sort of break it down, but you just look at it from a distance and you go, what is going on here? Like, how can this possibly be beneficial? And then when you get a keeper that can kick it long to a winger and you get these 1v1 situations, you go, oh, makes sense now. But we've earned this. We All those years of of 20 outfield players within 10 yards either side of the halfway line or a goal mm-hmm. kick, you know, oh, look, he's gone in the air. We, we've earned this, this maverick era. Thank you, Marcelo Bielsa. Thank you. I was about to say that with Bielsa being the, the sort of the biggest example I could think of man for man towards the end of his tenure, it was so kind of easy. I remember it was a game against Tottenham that Tottenham just basically ran away from the ball to create space elsewhere and Leeds obviously followed them because they went man for man. That just makes you think, is it quite easy to actually get around it? Aside from maybe sometimes kicking it long, if you were to kind of be especially explicit in the way that you did pull the opposition around to try and then create space for your most creative and attacking players. It seems like it's quite a fallible way to to defend. There's something quite basball about it yeah. to go gr- cross sport Yeah. in that the benefits of it are immense, the risks of it are high, but if you only allow yourself to focus on the benefits of it, then it probably helps with buy-in, it helps with motivation and and avoiding what are obvious questions as a viewer, which is like, might you be a bit more solid if you just yeah. sat in every, just just every now and then? There's, a, I think, across a lot of sports, the same in in pro cycling. Teams have gone back to tactics that no one's seen for sort of 40, 50 years. And I think there's such an immediacy now with you know people analyze stuff straight away, which never used to happen. I think people, it's it's kind of encouraged a sort of laissez-faire. Let's just see what happens. Sort of. And yeah, but it's 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 trying to let positive outcomes define how you play rather than fear, I guess. That's what Jack Leach said in a great interview over the summer. He's, he was asked about it and you could tell during these interviews that the, the journalists, understandably, are trying to get the players to say, we know it's fairly nuts. And they don't, you know, they don't. It's, it is cultish. They have to buy in fully. Otherwise, what would the point be if there's one weak link mm. in a man-to-man press, then you're all going to look like idiots, right? And And Jack Leach very persuasively said... You don't understand. I played for England for however many years and I was governed by fear. I didn't want to let the country down. I didn't want to get hit for sixes. And that was, and my body would be tense. And now I feel loose. And I think my performance has improved because of that. And I think there's probably some crossover in what we're talking about here as much as I'd enjoy a cricket tactics pod. It's probably not, probably not going to get commissioned anytime soon. Um, fascinating though. I also just think like the physical demands given the level of athleticism that Premier League players have now, you know, think of the players that you have to mark in midfield, man for man, that the the extent to which they can run for a long time very, very quickly. Like you have to be fully bought in. Because if you're really not up for it, again, the whole house of cards comes crashing down. Yeah, I think we've really come off the back of sort of a decade or two decades worth of football becoming really more scientific mm-hmm. um, and that all feeds into the measurement of stuff now, how the game's been played to be more systemized and more tactical. I think there is now a greater demand and see it in other sports for it being more of an art form, more of theatre again, it'd be more entertaining of teams want to play this way now and it attracts neutrals because 
if you're going to press man for man, you're going to build up from the back, short and short and deep and, and beta press that it's going to create chances at either end of the pitch. Either you're going to play through really stylishly and you're going to um, you know, play through and there's going to be more chances from more attacks or you're going to lose it because you're being high pressed and then the other team get the you know chance to score. It's going to mean hopefully less turgid, as we were saying before, less just people kicking it long, less ball into touch, more ability to sort of break down patterns and see these things. And that is just, I think for more people, more shots, more style, um, more situations where it's exciting and, and more dynamic. And that is what people want to watch now. And I guess if you can't get that in football, people will go elsewhere to watch that in, in other sports. That is interesting because that is the other thing that the England players have repeatedly said all summer, almost as if they've been briefed, which is whenever they're asked about it, they say, we want to entertain the fans. We think this is what people want to see and we want to grow the game. So uh, I'm enjoying a lot of the games that I'm watching at Premier League level, maybe more so than I would have done 10 years ago. So uh, there you go. That comes full circle. Uh, lastly, I saw quite a few outfielders taking goal kicks, uh, which feels very sort of under nines football to <laughs> me. Just uh, goal kicks in under nines is either the biggest <laughs> kid or anyone, maybe the goalkeeper stubbed his toe or tripped stood on a Lego or something and, and doesn't want to hurt his foot. But now we're seeing it at Premier League level to, to a greater extent than before. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't like the defining trend, but I think it's it's flagworthy to, to your point. Flagworthy, incredible I, word. I love that. I think so. I think so. I looked into the numbers on it. Eight out of the 20 teams had a non-goalkeeper take at least one goal kick, which I think is quite notable. Yeah, you know? and Definitely. Well, we can talk about the tactical reasons as to, to why that is, but there was a few occasions I saw, um, I think Virgil van Dijk passed it to, to Alisson and Luke Shaw passed it to Onana and it... Whether or not it's it's the first phase of maybe the the centre back or the full back taking it initially and then opening up the space to I'm sure Liam will be able to explain it more tactically or sometimes the the goalkeeper just making a simple pass within even the six yard box at times to get the ball back straight away for them to then build the attack I think that's what it's designed to do isn't it Liam to open up the whole pitch from a pressing perspective Yeah and it's like Duncan was saying before. Um... Because the goalkeepers, if a team is pressing man for man, aren't a player they allocate to press, it will be 10 outfielders v 10 outfielders, that it just then is your spare player. And sort of you then get that situation where the keeper's standing on the ball and everyone's sort of like, oh, what do you do now? And there's been, we spoke about it actually in the in the preseason preview that um, the couple of assists that Jason Sealers had for Brighton against Brentford in preseason and in a Premier League game where he was literally, before he hit the ball, beckoning basically his players to come towards him and say, come closer, come closer. Um, because that way, once you're in the middle of the pitch, you can then choose if you go left or right again. And it could be as straightforward as the keeper then still passing back to the same centre-back. It's not you know, it's not a big revolutionary thing, but it's just a simple thing of, well, it gives us a bit more control rather than if we pass one side and they're quick enough to arc a press and lock you into one part of the pitch, then you've just got slightly less control. So it's not it's not huge, it's not revolutionary, but it just makes a little bit more sense. Yes, yeah, it, well, A, it's interesting because we're, what, three or four years into the new goal kick rule and it's already seeing innovation. B... Like you say, it's not a massive difference, but it's an aesthetic difference. And I think it's, I've seen League One games this season where teams are doing it and it's really panicking fans because the idea of their goalkeeper receiving the ball right in front of their goal is is scary to a lot of people. But, you know, I think the more it's done, the more people get used to it. And when they see the benefits, it is it's worth doing. I'm not sure if it's legal or if we'll ever see it as a trend, um, but the keeper possibly starting with the ball a goal kick, chipping it to a defender to head it, chest it, thigh it back, whatever, not with the foot to be caught, and then just smash a drop kick really far and really long. You can't I would love do that. To, that, that. That is sad because I'd love to see that. I didn't think you could, um, but that would be... What's the rule there? So 
when the back pass rule came in in 92, there was a brief um, spate of players sort of getting to the edge of their box, doing a little keepy-uppy and then like kneeing or mm. heading it back to the keeper and they quickly Quality. stamped. Yeah, it looked great. Um, actually, it looked terrible, but it was quickly stamped out. Now, as far as I know it, they made any sort of thing like that illegal. Now, if you're saying like, if you tripped it long enough, Someone like powered ahead of it might <laughs> might be all right. What's the threshold here? I, don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. I actually don't know if there is a threshold, whether it's just like a deliberate action, it triggers the thing. But get VAR looking at you are the ref, there, there's its next. Yeah, uh, uh, tweet us if you know the laws of the game better than we do. What <laughs> can we do on this front? Because we've got some innovative thoughts going forward. Uh, gosh, it's nice to have some actual football to talk about, isn't it? Love preview content uh, but it's so nice to be breaking down games once again after a couple of months off so thank you for getting to the end of this podcast uh, it's brilliant to have you listening to us again this season we're very grateful for your uh, time and we hope that you enjoy listening to this episode and all the ones to come make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed and also to The Athletic so you can read everything that these guys are writing and so much more as well theathletic.com forward slash tactics is the place to be and do join us again next week thanks very much for listening to The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast The Athletic.